Selamat pagi. Good morning. Um, we are still in Sumatra. We've just left Lake Toba. And we're rolling. Well... As I look in the rearview mirror at Lake Toba, I did a bit of research, and it's so easy now, but back then, like obviously, a little bit harder. But while we were worrying about the crackers and the rat that had ate them in our little batik room in uh, Lake Toba, we had no idea that Krakatoa existed uh, between Sumatra and Java, which was one of the loudest volcanic eruptions ever recorded. Um, and Lake Toba was actually the supervolcano. So Krakatoa, it blasted out 310 decibels, which apparently is the equivalent of 100 billion chainsaws. <laughs> And it was heard in Perth, Australia, which is 3,000 kilometers away. And it was heard just off, the, I think it was Mauritius, 5,000 kilometers away on the other side of the Indian Ocean. And that was a stinker. That was a, on the index. It was level six. And it created 40-meter high waves, uh, killed a hell of a lot of people and affected the weather. But when Toba went up in 70,000 years ago, it spread ash for 800,000 kilometers, square kilometers, and it um, was a level eight on the volcanic scale, which is, um, it's all logarithmic, so it's a lot more than a six. I think it's times 100. It, could be times 10. I don't know, but it's it's a lot more than 100 billion um, chainsaws. And we were just camping on top of it, totally sort of ignorant to the ticking time bomb because it could still go off. You just don't know um, when these things are going to go again. But Indonesia, there's 130 volcanoes in the country. There's more than in any other country. And pretty much like Sumatra, Java and a lot of the islands further east, they all run on the fault line. So it's really weak, which is where all the uh, magma comes up through and creates these volcanoes. A place called Spiruk was our next day's destination. But we got caught in heavy rain that made rivers from roads and made our packs twice as heavy. Through the heavy sheets of rain, we saw this bold, boldly painted sign that stood out from the green, the Panas Café, the hot café. And soon we were on the inside wringing out our socks and feeling the comfort of the rain on the roof. So the owner of this café Panas Cafe was really hospitable and he invited us in to eat with his family. He was saying that 
in his early life, he used to smuggle booze and cigarettes to Singapore to sell for huge profits. Because there was a massive, ridiculous spike in cost between places around Singapore and Singapore itself. So I can see the appeal. He was admitting this to us openly in front of three Indonesian police officers. And they, they laughed and they admitted themselves to taking bribes to make up for their poor wages. We spent the night on an annex to the cafe, like a shack on stilts that overhung the swollen river. Wasn't the most safe feeling. Early in the morning, Panas came, got up and woke his kids to eat before the hours of fasting. It was pretty bad because we were riding and using so much energy and the majority of Sumatra were fasting for uh, Ramadan. And the, if, if they saw us eating, the little kids would be heartbroken, like, why is that kid? They called it Puasa. And they said, Puasa! You'd be sat there stuffing your face in the street eating bananas and crackers or something. And they'd say, hey! There were some cafes that were for the um, non, they used to say fanatic, no fanatic, because a few times we'd get offered food during the day and they'd say, shh, no fanatic. Um, and there was little cafes, they were like the equivalent of the prohibition in America where you were snuck in for some alcohol, but in these places all the blinds were down and you could sneak in for food during the day. The jungle has gone in the back of the logging trucks that brush pies every day, taking the soil out of the place. Without the tree roots, the soil was eroding and sliding down the hillsides. In the valleys, the young kids used banana leaves as umbrellas. The older kids helped mum stir up the shit in the paddies and plant rice. After 50 k's of solid uphill, my crank on my bike gave in. We ended up stranded in a place called Padam Sidempuan. Bri towed me into town with a washing line. We ended up in a blacksmith shed, wondering if Mr. Smith could make a precision tool to remove my crank with an anvil and a lump hammer. Outside the blacksmith's, kids gathered round the bikes and unburdened Bri of his camera. We got to the police station, Right to the policeman, I've had my camera stolen, can you help me find it? We try. First we have to ask a few questions. Policeman, where are you from? Bry, England. Policeman, oh, Anglet. Oh yes, Liverpool? Bry, no, Halifax. i got to tell this right, because it's kind of funny. Policeman, what is your name? Bry. Brian Keegan. Policeman, are you married? Bry. No, listen, I need to find my camera. My camera was stolen. Policeman. Oh, I'll get someone to help you. Then a second policeman walked in the room. Bry to second policeman. Hi, I've had my camera stolen. Can you help me find it? We try, but first I have to ask you a few questions. 
Second policeman. Where are you from? Bry. England. Policeman. London? Bry. No. Halifax. Second policeman. What is your name? Bry. Brian Keegan? <laughs> and this just... <laughs> they must have had about ten coppers just queuing up outside. <laughs> it was like we were... Uh, there were reporters and they had like, you know, you, you've got a two-minute slot with this uh, rock star or something. <laughs> so after about the 10th cop asked Bry's name and where he was from and if he liked football, uh, Bry realised the camera really had gone. So he told me, we can't fix the bikes, camera's gone. So Bry got the washing line and told me to um, a bus stop. And we actually caught a bus. We became passengers on a bus to Bakatingi. We crossed the equator on the bus. <laughs> That's pretty ironic. Heading to Bakatingi, um, trying to find a, a bike mechanic. On the way there, it was the weirdest thing. We stopped at these toilets, and normally, like, when we're riding, you just stopped where you could, you know, behind a bush or down a hillside, whatever. But this time, because we're on this bus, we had to go with everyone else. And there was this, actually, a set of toilets. But it was bizarre. They were, like, cubicles, but they were only, like, probably a metre high. So you sat in this, like, brick cubicle doing your business and right next to you was a lady or a bloke just sat there doing their business <laughs> the most ridiculous thing ever in World War Two, in Bakatingi the Japanese forced the locals to dig these caves in the cliffs so these sheer cliffs and they had caves coming out and they had the Japanese had armaments in there loads of people died there was like a big memorial there, like a plaque, like an embossed brass plaque, I think it was, showing the struggles of the locals with the Japanese. I'd gone to these caves at night, I think, I'm not sure where Bry was, but I'd gone in and tried to walk through these caves, but the main entrance was locked. I tried a side entrance and it opened. This tunnel leading out, but I had this little tiny torch, and um, I was scared, so I didn't go in very far. I turned around and started heading back <laughs> to the guest house. But when I was walking back, there was this local dude. He had like a shaved head and just looked real streetwise. And he said, "Hey, you want to fly to the moon, the Bulan, which is moon." Um, and then in a quieter voice he said magic mushroom and a woman to keep you warm a beautiful girl stood coyly by his side smiling at me the dude he looked a creep he had like an aluminous green fungus he had like these scabs on his face like aluminous green he looked like a magic mushroom he only wanted a few rupees, so I just gave him a few rupees for this, um, to give me some mushrooms. 
I don't know what I was thinking. I, I'd taken them before in England, but um, we didn't really need them. I don't know. I don't know. I was just tripping. And um, he went off to get these mushrooms. I declined on the lady. Jeez. When I when I got back to the little guest room and told Bri about Fungus Man and flying to the moon, he looked at me funny, like, oh, Jack went to market. <laughs> so that night we met this Fungus Man at this reggae bar with his long-haired friends, and we ate these mushrooms, and they looked too clean and dry to be wild-grown hallucinogenic mushrooms. I think he couldn't actually find any, so not wanting to lose trade, he uh, just grabbed some normal mushrooms and cut them up. But with my cash, he bought a bottle of whiskey, and he kept plying us with whiskey, trying to get us drunk, because these mushrooms weren't working. The road was carved into the hillside under the lip of the jungle. In the canopy above us, exotic monkeys stared down at us and gibbons. But on the roadside, the green monkeys, they were more like street monkeys. They behaved like teenage hooligans, intimidating us, baring the teeth and flashing the testicles. Um, luckily, the land was leading quickly downhill towards Lake Manninger. There was an amazing descent. There was 44 consecutive hairpin bends just going whoosh, 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 whoosh. we glided down this, these hills past the overload of buses on the straights daring no hands until the very last seconds before the next bend the bus's engines wind in low gear the drivers not wanting to test the capabilities of their brakes in the valley down below we carried our bikes on the narrow strip between the paddies to a little guest house. Bri washed his clothes in a dugout canoe that was rinsed by the wind-driven waves. In the valley, copra grew in abundance and the coconut men rode their ancient bicycles loaded up with coconuts. A male green monkey sat on the crossbar staring through the handlebars. On the uphills, when, when the master got off his bike to walk, the monkey did too. And if he didn't, he'd get a backhander from the master. Climbing trees and twisting off coconuts all day was hard work, and the green monkeys grew really strong. There was this daddy of all coconut monkeys crossed our path one day. He looked right into my eyes and bared his teeth, and he wouldn't stop staring at me. And when... <laughs> As we were riding past, he's locked onto me. And every time I looked back, he was there, still looking at me, looking at me, looking at me. <laughs> man in jail to parry a man. We hit 4,000 miles, which is like 6,000 k's or something. Just over 6,000 k. And I'd written, On the equator, only the darkest skins survive. Blackened and cracked like bark on a tree. The sun seems to wait for the apple struggle before putting full beans on us. The, the Wurrungs ref refuse to serve food because of Ramadan. 
When we do find food, the kids jealously watched us drinking water and eating bananas. Some started to cry. Eventually we found food in a cafe hidden behind thick blinds. It was really dark inside, where hip hypocrites and non-fanatics ate. After 4,000 miles and one ice-cold beer to celebrate, the Wurrung owner's son gave us a lift across to the lagoon. We slept on the sand in the light of a coconut husk fire, started with two or three gallons of Lord Grade kerosene. On sunrise, fishermen were dragging in their nets from the ocean. The nets were heavy, and the fishermen strained to bring them in. Brian and me rolled out of our sleeping bags and gave them a hand. We were wondering what monster fish lay in the tangle, only to find a hundred jellyfish suffocating the tiniest of fish beneath them. The fish was so small to do anything with but to dry out that the locals gave nothing back to the sea for a chance to grow. It took every single last one. The lagoon restaurant had no food. Ramadan again. We cycled back in search of a non-fanatic. Okay, leading on from the really aggressive, tough-looking green coconut monkey with muscles twice the size of mine. Um, just talking about coconuts. We were... We were riding that night and um, me and Brian just decided to stuff our bikes up a little sidetrack into this copra plantation and we just pitched the tent. It was already dark and we seemed to have gone unnoticed until we heard a commotion, lots of voices, those quiet country voices that sort of sing you to sleep. They're all, Hey, Jamalakana, Hati Hati, Disini, Underlay, not Underlay, Hati Hati, Underlay's Thai. Hati Hati means heart, heart in Indonesian. We opened the tent and the Kapela Desa, which is the head of the village, Kapala means head, um, and, all, and the men from the village have surrounded our tent. They're running the torches over our belongings and us. Malkamana! The Capella Desa asked. Malkamana means go to where. We try to explain that we're tired, which is chapet. Chapet sakali tidar tisini. Sleep here. Did that be, sir? You can't. I thought he wanted us to move on, but he shone his torch up into the canopies and the ripe coconuts. They seemed concerned where we decided to pitch our tent could be bombarded by coconuts in the middle of the night. We were just too tired to care. Mamandi? The Capella Desarast. Mail copy? It's like, yo, yeah. So we followed the guy's torches, weak orange light, up into the village. In this village, they, 
built a tin shack around a um, well. So you could go inside this person's house, throw down a bucket hundreds of feet into this well, pull it up and uh, have a shower right there inside this house. Me and Bri were sort of stumbling around, roping buckets of water up and changing our clothes. And we're behind like a woven palm leaf wall. But with the kerosene oil lamps, we could see the silhouettes of these people looking at us through the gaps, just kids. After a copy and showing the locals photos, doing mimes and lots of other things that locals like to see us do, which could be really tiring, actually. <laughs> you kind of, you get kindness, but there's kind of an unwritten understanding that, you know, you had to do a bit of entertaining. We wandered back to the plantation, to our tent. The Capella Dicer had escorted us down there, and he looked up again, shook his head. Hati hati. But, obviously, <laughs> there's no teaching these guys. Middle of the night, during the night. These big coconuts just dropping and rolling through the forest. When we woke up in the morning, there's bloody coconuts all around us. There's a there's an urban legend that coconuts kill about 150 people a year, but there's no real proof behind it. I reckon it was um, surfers who put that out there to compare it to shark attacks. You know, you got more chance of getting killed by a coconut than a great white. And there's also a lot of potassium in coconuts, so apparently if you drink too much, you uh, you can die from that too, if you have a reaction to it. All I know is I was once on an island where the only water source was coconuts, and I had to climb coconut trees every day, which is hard when you're not that good at it. And you get covered in ants trying to twist them off. And without a good machete, it's pretty hard to get them open. I just had a little stick, and if you drink too many, you get diarrhea. I can attest to that. Just outside Ipo, in February 1996, these local kids were jumping out of the trees into the fast-flowing river, just having a ball. We decided to join them. But the riverbank was clay and really slippery. I slipped on my ass straight down into the river and just took a full gobful of uh, Mandy Waisei cocktail. Which, the reason I say that is because you'd often go to these villages and you'd say, uh, Mandy? And they'd point to the uphill, the upriver side of the river. And then Waisei, toilet, and it'd be the downhill side of the river. But then you get to the next village further downstream and it was the same deal. So pretty much uh, people were shitting down downstream on each other. And I got a gobful. Within a few hours, this cocktail had worked its way through my system. Um, failing to find a quiet place to suffer, I had to go under the bridge with the locals. 
I staggered up the riverbank, feeling sorry for myself. Hey, Mauti Disney? A local asked, pointing to his house. You want to sleep here? You got that a lot in um, in Muslim countries. You get a lot of kindness. You know, a stranger rocks up, they look after you. And this guy just invited us in and let us sleep in his house. Being too tired to entertain it. And it seemed rude, but I was just too sick. I just went in his house and straight to bed. He gave us this bed in this room. Um, Brian me, I think we had to lay top and tail. I lay in the dark nurse in my stomach. The crack in the bedroom door widened a bit later and a young guy came in. Just come off work. His dad had given his bed away to strangers. Just looking at us. What the fuck are these guys? The house was pitch black. I couldn't see anything. In fact, worse, I had no idea which was the front of the house or the back. And uh, I've generally, I've got a pretty crap sense of direction. Like, so I, I had to take off. My guts just went, go, go, go. So I had to go back to the river, to the Waisei. And I'm stumbling down this track and there's just rocks everywhere. Ow, 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 ow. And, um, Slipping and sliding down this riverbank, pitch black. Because I didn't know where else you could do a crap. Because you couldn't just like offload at the side of this dude's house. So I I submerged myself in the cold water. And I'm holding my stomach. It's a fucking awful feeling. You know, it's cold water and you got this. Why would you sit in water to do a shit? But that's what people do. Um, as everything quietens back down I can hear people all around me people moved and people relaxed their bowels I turned away from one only to be staring at someone else so everyone's just quietly um, evacuating the bowels mainly a lot of old people um and my skin just betrayed me and must have said, this is straight from the journal. Hey, look at me and my luminous bum. Because I was suddenly under the spotlight. The spotlight of torches and surrounded on all points. Hello, Slumet Baggy! Fisherman grinned. They kept the beam on me. So I'm like, sat down in this river with this bright torch and all these fishermen on the bank just having a right old crack. Hey, how you going, sir? I'm going, Sakit Prod, Sakit Prod, Bemisi, Bagarov. Like Sakit Prod, so guts. Um, where are you going, mister? Where do you think I'm going? <laughs> Cold and wet, I trailed back to the house and laid down again for what could have been three minutes before I was back stubbing my toes down the track. Oh fuck, some water. Hang on. You bastards. Oh, what the? Okay, I'm going for it. The Nell's map. Showed like this straight line running alongside the Indian Ocean once we'd gone over the mountains. 
what we didn't realize was every time it got to a river, they didn't have the money to build a big bridge, so it just shot straight back up into the mountains until the river was narrow enough, and then they'd build a smaller bridge. And then you'd drop back down to the coast again and keep going. And this just went on and on like that, like there was just these roller coasters. You go up, big roller coaster, and then you'd have to like put it in the hardest gear and try and pedal as hard as you could to get up the other side. And then wind it down to the easy gear. And then eventually you'd get over that, and then you'd be back down at the coast. And this went on and on. After a full day of this, these short and sharp rides, we just didn't have enough on our legs anymore. We dropped down to the coast, and there was this beautiful white sand beach just taking a battering from the waves. The, the surf, I wasn't a surfer back then, but you could just tell the surf was great. It's just perfect, glassy offshore waves just peeling along, along the coast. <laughs> My only knowledge of surfing was as a kid in Cornwall, 1976, belly surfing on a piece of timber. There was a truck stop nearby, like a truck stop restaurant with a friendly owner. I asked Eddie if he had anything we could substitute for a surfboard. Eddie took the nails out of an old floorboard and handed it to me. The ocean could have killed Brian me, but Brian managed to swim back to shore, and I got drilled into the seabed. My shorts ripped off and out to sea if I hadn't done the splits to save them. When we got back to the restaurant, Eddie shook his head. Many people dead here. Toss. This was a spot as well where the tsunami would have hit the shore when Bandache went up. We had food at this restaurant and played chess with a bus driver and his crew who had been stuck here for days working on their bus. The bus driver had lost control and slid the bus on its side down a steep hill, smashing every window and redefining the shape so there was an apex above where the windscreen used to be. I don't know what happened to the passengers, but no one seemed too concerned. The conductor climbed a coconut palm and shared a, some coconuts with us. We sat down by the shore drinking the milk and watching the tin cans and plastic bags washed down into the sea from the cafe. We pitched our tent on the edge of the ocean. I'm glad we didn't pitch this tent a decade or so later because that's when the big tsunami washed all this place away. I hope it didn't affect this restaurant and Eddie and his family. Outside the cafe on daybreak, young, young chickens flapped in the dirt, their lifeblood pumping out from the necks after a nick from a knife, and halal style. The sweet taste of copy manners still on our lips, we said the everlasting goodbye. I promised to marry one of Eddie's daughters in two years, and we head back out onto the roller coasters. Bri was at the roadside working on his bike. 
And I was halfway down a hillside in a coffee plantation, digging a hole. I could hear voices up top. Mocha Manor, where are you going? Where is your friend? Brian must have pointed. The people began to make their way down to me through the bushes. Oh, I'm not like the fisherman. No, please. Go away. Fuck off. Go on. Fuck. <laughs> I just lost it. I was like, God, no. No, go, go away. Go fuck. Carrying on like a pork chop and... Um, the rustling in the bushes subsided. But when I got back up from the bushes, Bray was surrounded by coppers. There's loads of armed policemen. Lucky they, they just laughed. The cameras came out and the sergeant, who was a short guy, he stood on this big pile of earth. So he looked tall next to us. We managed to cover 120 kilometres, helped along by Cockalot. No joke, it was um, the name of their chocolate there. And Rambutan, which is Rambutan, which is Rambut is hair, and it means hairy fruit. It's kind of got that Utan on the end, like Rangutan, um, but it's Rambutan. You would have seen them. They're like a red and green, hairy. They're a bit like a lychee, but super hairy. Uh, so a, th a thoughtful shopkeeper gave us two bags of these. He'd gone out the back of his shop and there's a big rambutan tree and he had a big bamboo pole and he's twisting off all these rambutans. The bags were overflowing. He gave us so many and the local kids run after the bikes, picking them up to eat. We stopped off at a restaurant next to a river on the outskirts of a place called Padanguchi. A fat logging worker was there, and he, as we slurped on our noodles and egg, he kept asking us if we wanted boom boom. Do you boom boom? And he kept pointing to the woman who was serving us. Later on, in the restaurant, the guy said we could sleep there for free. And it, but he kept insisting this girl came with us. Boom, 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 boom. But we shut the door on Mr. Boom, boom. And, but there wasn't any ventilation or any light. It was this little room which must have been like where all the boom, boom happened. It was the boom, boom room. And he... They'd papered all the walls so there was no cracks. It's all newspapers and magazines. And they blocked off every bloody possible spot for ventilation in the entire room to blank out the peepholes. We actually found a toilet it's quite amazing. We were in a cafe and we said, Waysay? And they actually pointed out the back and there was this little hut on stilts over this creek. Again, straight into the river. Um, 
the uh, garbage highway where anything you don't want you just put in the water and I lifted the hatch and there were ducks and fish all waiting there to get a feed there was a story like that in India too where this guy went for a poo and when he went there to the toilet there was a pig getting really excited and going <laughs> and um, he didn't understand why but when he did his business the poo rolled down a chute into the back pen and then the pig just had a feed Thanks for listening. I'm going to call it a day there because um, the next episode is very exciting and people could have nearly got killed a couple of three times. I just want to dedicate this episode to a good mate of mine, Dickie Hanlon, who's encouraged me throughout to keep going with these podcasts. And I um, just want to take my hat off to you, Dickie, and say thanks for all the encouragement. Peace out, brother. Take it easy, everyone. Bye.